What would your family do with an extra five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month? It's a nice problem to have. And lots of listeners to 83 weeks have had that problem. Once they visit SaveWithConrad.com to keep more of your own money, get a quick quote for your family right now at SaveWithConrad.com. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save for free right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh yeah, did I mention we're licensed in more than 40 states? And check this out, no house payments until July. That's right, skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well, enjoying the uh, spring weather, and looking forward to uh, getting up in the mountains this weekend. So, all is good. Can't complain. Well, you say that now. We'll see if you have the same story at the end of today's episode. Today, we celebrate a bit of an anniversary. Yesterday, was the 20 year anniversary of David Arquette winning the world title. Can't believe that's a real thing on April 26, 2000 on thunder. It's a world title change. That is maybe the most infamous in WCW history. No, we didn't see Ric Flair win in controversial fashion. And we didn't see sting show up without a tan. And we didn't see Goldberg street come to an end. We saw David Arquette win the world title. That's right. The actor. He's been in a bunch of movies. Of course, the Scream franchise, probably most famously, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Airheads, Never Been Kissed, and many more. And it's pretty remarkable when you think about it, Eric, because on the one hand, people talk about this and say, oh, it's the worst thing ever. How dare they? Who booked this shit? But on the other hand, some of the people listening to this podcast couldn't tell you who the champ was three months ago. And they still remember this one from 20 years ago. Do you hang your hat on that a little bit? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. I certainly don't. (laughs) It comes back to haunt me on a regular basis on, on my Twitter feed. Yeah. It's really one of the more, um, I don't know, controversial moments in WCW history. Um, we should mention that, that a lot of this happens because David was the, uh, one of the starring roles and ready to rumble the movie that was loosely based on WCW programming. Talk to us about how this all came together, you know, from the movie side of things, before we get into him actually winning the title and things like that there, we've heard that the character that uh, quote unquote, Joey pants played was loosely based on you. And they even have him wear some, uh, some garb, like you might see people sporting in Wyoming. Talk to me a little bit about the movie and, and how that all came to be. Yeah. Um, before I get into that, uh, Joe Pantaleone, I think that was a 
or is the proper pronunciation of his name. Yep. Uh, I was originally supposed to play myself in that movie. Um, and, and backing up that movie, the idea of doing the movie and all of the pre-production, the, the conception of it and so forth was something that I initiated probably in the summer of 99 Maybe the spring of 99 is when I had a, a meeting with a gentleman by the name of Leonardo de Bonaventura, uh, who has since you know, gone on to become one of the top producers in, in Hollywood to this day. Uh, he's kind of a big deal at, at Warner Films. But uh, Leonardo was just starting his career, I believe, at that point. He, he was new in his career. And I, I don't honestly remember if they approached me or if I approached them. I'm pretty certain they approached me. When I say they, I mean Warner uh, approached me about the possibility of doing a movie. And keep in mind, you know, in the summer of 99, there was still a lot of residual high in the mainstream media, meaning, you know, Hollywood in general, the mainstream media in general, wasn't paying as close attention to the weekly ratings and the competition between WWE and, and, and WCW at that time. So from a perception perspective, a lot of people in Hollywood, especially or in the mainstream media who weren't paying close attention, were still looking at WCW as the juggernaut uh, that it had become in 96, 97 and 98. Uh, it, 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 there's a kind of a delayed, I guess, effect when it comes to perception. So they reached out. And, and of course, this was a time when, you know, Time Warner had a stake in Turner Broadcasting, therefore a stake in WCW. One of my goals, you know, before I left WCW in September of 99, when I say left, mean, meaning sent home, um, or paid or played, as we discussed last week, um, one of my goals was to kind of broaden the brand of WCW and, and, and extend it into other forms of media and entertainment. That was a goal of mine before Time Warner, uh, I'll say acquired Turner Broadcasting um, or merged maybe is more appropriate. But even prior to that time in 96 and 97, one of my goals was to explore, not a goal, but I was exploring animation as I was exploring other forms of television. If, you know, anybody wants to do their research, uh, I was able to get guys like Randy Savage and, and others into some pretty high profile, um, television, uh, scripted television opportunities. I myself took part in a show called Arliss on HBO, uh, did some stuff with Jeff Foxworthy. So there was, there was an effort on, on my part, on, on WCW's part, supported by Turner Broadcasting, to not only try to grow the WCW brand within the world of professional wrestling and within the world of, of our genre, if you will, but also to leverage our characters and leverage our success in other forms of entertainment. Much like WWE has done so successfully over the last decade or more. So that was, you know, the, the idea for ready to rumble started, I'm going to, I'm going to call it late spring of 99, worked on it throughout the summer with the writers who I just can't remember their names any longer, but, uh, had, had several meetings in LA and I wasn't directly involved with the script. I was more of a consulting producer, I think would be the best way to say it. But that whole process started in 
like I said, late spring, probably of 99. And then, of course, I was let go in, in September. By that point, Tom, uh, Warner Films had committed to the project and it continued its development without me. And obviously, I was no longer going to play the the role that Joey Pants played and and play myself in the movie. And 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 ultimately, you know, Joey came in. And you know, there were some high profile actors at the time. Oliver Platt, who was probably at the apex of his career at that point, uh, it was a pretty hot commodity. Uh, he had signed on to do the movie as well as a, a few others, but uh, I, I was reading about it on the sidelines in September. That's that's how it kind of all came about. Let's fast forward. David makes his uh, first appearance on WCW TV on the April 12th, 2000 episode of Thunder. So two weeks prior uh, to the night we're going to talk about shortly, he's sitting in the crowd before jumping in the ring and having a confrontation with yourself and the new blood. There's a lot to unpack here. Talk to me about, and we've recently covered, and you should go listen to this in the archive spring stampede 2000. Uh, and I guess a year ago, maybe perhaps two, we talked about, um, you know, the, the sort of nitro where you reset everything, where we strip all the titles and we say, Hey, it's a new beginning. And then six days later, there's Spring Stampede, which we just covered last week. But I want to ask, because one of the things that sticks out to me is his debut here. And then when he wins the title, it happens on Thunder, not TNT, not Nitro, not the flagship. Is there a strategy there? Is it is it based on, hey, we think Thunder's dying on the vine. We need to give it a shot in the arm or we need to sort of raise the profile. Or was it TBS saying, hey, we need something special or why does, why does this happen and why does he make his debut? We'll start there on thunder. Um, I, TBS didn't really put any pressure on us in terms of, Hey, we need something special. You're doing this over on TNT. So we need something special or the numbers are getting a little soft. There was not a lot of pressure on me from TBS in terms of what I did. There was a lot of pressure on, on us in terms of how we did it, meaning, and I don't want to beat this to death. We've covered it ad nauseum. I don't want to do it here. But, you know, the standards and practices issue is a big issue and that type of thing. But in terms of the actual creative content, there was not a lot of, of pressure on us to, to – you know, nobody was trying to influence us too much. So the decision was really, you know, internal, which was, hey, you know, we, we put so much equity into TNT. We put all of our eggs in the what we consider the A-show because it was the A-show. Um, we need to, to treat thunder the same way. So it, it doesn't by default become less than the, the nitro format. So the, the decision was an internal one, short, short answer. Cause I know I get long winded. I've been reading a lot of the criticism of our show. And <laughs> Don't do that. Don't you dare do that. Tip, 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 I, I get so because God damn, do you ever take a breath? Do you ever stop talking? You, you start answering a question and everybody forgets the question before you get to the answer. So I'm going to try not to do that on this episode. No, I'm going to do, try to be focused and succinct and clear and tie all this together as best I possibly can to satisfy the fucking trolls on, on social media who just need to find something, anything to bitch about. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> and if I fail, fuck it. Just fuck it. If I fail, I don't care, but at least I'm going to try. So there, what was the question? I forgot. 
God damn it. There I go again. I love it. I love when you're fired up. Red ass JR has been good for business. Let's do a little red ass Bischoff here. Um, well, all right. So now that we've, we've identified why thunder, can you pinpoint when you decided, or I guess how you decided it? Was it, was it something that they said, Hey, we, we need to sort of cross promote this movie. Or did you think, Hey, maybe this movie can have some legs and we'll get the rub from it. There's no telling what this thing could do. Let's make the most of our opportunity. I guess my question is, is this something you guys inside of WCW try to push for to have Arquette involved? Or is it something the movie studio says, Hey, do you think you can come up with a way for us to sort of cross promote? It was both. Um, it was, look, it's common sense. And, you know, you go back to 2000, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe wrong when I say this and I'm sure somebody out there is going to correct me and that's fine. I, I hope they do. Um, but up until this point, there had never been a major feature film from a major studio funded by a major studio released in theaters. So it was a big opportunity for us. Now, you know, Vince McMahon had pretty, you know, he, he, he did his, you know, Hulk Hogan movies and I can't remember the names of them at this point. I haven't had enough caffeine yet, but there had been movies prior to this, but never one from a major studio like Warner Films. So it was, it was common sense, you know, when an opportunity like that presents itself, uh, it had never been done before really. And it was a great opportunity for us to help rebrand WCW outside of the four corners of the traditional wrestling audience that was confined basically to USA Network, TNT, and TBS on Thunder. So yeah, it was a combination. You know, Warner Brothers was was excited to explore. You know, the word of the week, you know, or, or the word of the year after the Time Warner Turner merger was synergy. And it's ironic, and I'll get into that in just a little bit, but everybody was talking synergy. You know, when the merger happened, it was a, you got sick of hearing the term synergy in corporate meetings within Turner Broadcasting. Everybody was trying to find a way, and I'm talking about senior management, those above me um, at the executive level, the Ted Turner level, were all putting pressure on Turner Broadcasting to leverage their assets in any way possible to help support the merger and exploit the obvious synergy. So there, there was more than one reason to do this. It wasn't uh, contrary to the, the narrative, you know, at the time and, and, and certainly afterwards in, in the peripheral media, the wrestling media, it wasn't because Eric Bischoff wanted to be a Hollywood guy. It wasn't any of that. You know, I, I wasn't stupid. I wasn't going to take a major opportunity uh, to work with a, a probably at that point, the largest uh, movie studio in the world. I wasn't going to shit on that opportunity. I wasn't going to not take advantage of ways to work with our parent company. That would have been suicide. And, and it was one of the things, and this is, you know, we're going to probably end up jumping around and skipping the back and forth through this timeline. But some of these points are, are important. One of the reasons one of several reasons, but one of was the reputation that I had within Turner Broadcasting with senior management, those above me, uh, 
that had developed over a period of about a year, starting in August of 98, which we've covered many times, not going to do it again here. Starting in about 1998, when I was really resisting the pressure that I was feeling internally from senior management to change the way that we presented Nitro, to change the way we presented wrestling, to make it more family friendly, to make a bunch of changes, in, in, including, by the way, you know, gutting our budget through in the middle of the year with no advance notice and all kinds of other things. I, I thinking, and I've covered this before, but it's worth mentioning here. I, I wasn't aware how much capital that Ted Turner had lost within his own company. I still believed in 98 and then throughout 99 that Ted Turner was calling the shots and, and, and I acted accordingly because I had established a little bit of a reputation and, and a rapport, I guess, for lack of a better term this early in the morning within Turner broadcasting that Look, Eric's going to run WCW the way he wants to run WCW. It's been very successful. Kind of leave him alone. Don't make him wear a blue suit with wingtip shoes and a white shirt and a red tie. <clears throat> He's going to drive to work on his Harley. He's going to come to work in his jeans. He probably needs a haircut. He, he may or may not have a beard. He's going to show up at meetings looking you know, like the guy that changed the oil at Jiffy Lube. But that's okay because that's him and he's got, WCW. <clears throat> he's got WCW when it's fine. I was able to get away with all that, that renegade kind of approach to corporate, um, because we were successful. Well, once we stopped becoming as successful as we had been, it made me an easy target. And you've probably known me long enough. And even the people listening to this podcast have learned this about me, even though I've kind of calmed down quite a bit over the last 25 years. Um, if you want to push me, I'll push back. If you want to fight, I'll fight. If you want to argue, I'll argue. If I believe in what I'm arguing about, or if I'm passionate about what I believe in, I'll, I'll fight to the death if I have to. And I didn't make any exceptions when it came to corporate manage, senior corporate management, you know, including people that were on the executive committee of Turner Broadcasting. I would call them out when they were wrong. None of them were used to that. And I made a lot of enemies corporate enemies in the process, um, thinking that Ted Turner was still calling the shots because I believed that whenever push came to shove, as it had in the past, as it did in 96, as it did in 97, as it did in 98, early 98, whenever push came to shove and it came to the point where, okay, we're going to have to sit down in front of Ted. Uh, we very rarely had to sit down in front of Ted because if I pushed it to that point, usually people would back off. Because the outcome was fairly predictable, 96, 97, early 98. But by 99, Ted wasn't that guy. So I'm, I'm walking around thinking I've got a Ted Turner card in my pocket when I really didn't. I, I thought I did. Everybody that I was dealing with on the corporate side of the equation knew that that card wasn't any good anymore. That ace just turned into a two of diamonds. I didn't know it. They did. So things got really, really difficult for me. And one, one of the you know, takeaways from that period of time was that, oh, he's not a team player. Well, that's not really true. I was a team player. I was just playing. On, uh, I thought I was playing on one team when I was really playing on another. And I didn't know who the coach really was. I didn't know who was really calling the shots. So, you know, I, I stuck to my guns. I created a lot of issues for myself. 
But the takeaway, as I said, was uh, Eric's just not a team player. So they let me go. And that was one of the reasons. That wasn't the only reason, but that was a, a, a an underlying condition, is, is, <laughs> using a term that we've all come to know very well. Um, so when they let me go in September of 99, and then ultimately when I came back in 2000, I came back under a different set of terms. I was no longer running the whole company. I was overseeing the creative. And my job was really, initially, it was to manage Russo. I mean, Brad Siegel, and I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't remember his exact words were. Look, first of all, they were stuck with Russo. Brad did not want to hire Russo. Send me home, right? And that wasn't Brad's decision, by the way. That was a lady by the name of Vicki Miller's decision primarily. But uh, she was a head of corporate finance. Uh, because her and I didn't really get along. I refused to take meetings with her because they were just unproductive and it didn't make any sense to me at the time. Shows you what I knew. Um, but, you know, Brad, Brad was overseeing WCW. Brad made the decision to bring in Vince Russo, which was a profoundly bad idea. Put him under contract and within four to six months realized that he, you know, bought something that he wished he wouldn't. He had buyer's remorse, so to speak, but he couldn't turn around and fire him. He had a contract with him. It would have made Brad look stupid. So, or it would have, it wouldn't have made him look stupid. Brad had a good rep- reputation in Turner Broadcasting, but it would have, it would have been a bad decision. It would have looked badly bad for, for, for Brad to, you know, have to pay or play Vince Russo six months after bringing him in. So Brad brought me in to try to manage Russo. Brad's, Brad's words were something to the effect of, look, he's dark. It's not working. The entire company's uncomfortable with him. Can you manage him? Can you oversee him? Can you basically filter him? Because it, it, now these were Brad's exact words. I'll never forget them. He's just too dark. So I came back. And when I came back, I thought, all right. It, it, it's by that time, by the time I came back in 2000, I realized Ted was no longer Ted within the company. In fact, he was relegated to a corner office with no responsibilities and nobody, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't his company anymore. Uh, he, he had no credibility within his own company. Nobody was listening to him uh, in terms of current management. So, and I knew that by that time. So when I came back, I thought, okay, I've got two choices. I can come back and try to be the same guy I was before and approach things the same way I did before, which wasn't going to work. Or I can, I can try to adapt to this new environment at Turner Broadcasting Time Warner. So when I came back, one of the first things that I reminded myself on my way to work every morning or every time I picked up a phone is to embrace the idea of synergy, to be a little, not a little, a lot easier to get along with on the corporate side of the equation. And that was one of the reasons that I probably went as far or not went. It wasn't my decision. Many, many of these calls or not many, some of these calls, some of these major calls weren't my calls, but I had a choice. I could either fight it and kind of revert back to the management style that had gotten me in trouble at WCW and Time Warner in the first place or I could adapt. So I tried to adapt. And that was one of the reasons, in addition to the fact that it was good business on paper, common sense, 
to exploit what appeared to be before the movie came out, what appeared to be a major opportunity. I hate Steven singer. And you know what else I hate everything that's happening in the world right now. Our heart breaks for those who have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling, small businesses, and everyone affected by this. Normally Steven singer is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time when I would announce his new rose color for mother's day, but this year is different. I'm announcing his brand new. I love you 24 karat gold dipped rose. It's a beautiful pink blush color rose that will hopefully brighten your loved one's day. But Steven wants to put a little love in everyone's days. So he's using a portion of every rose sold to support local restaurants by purchasing catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, and first responders and hospital workers. You can purchase an I love you rose and know that you're sending love to the moms in your life while supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone, simply say, I love you or honor mom on mother's day. Steven singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible. Steven treats his customers as family and is here for you. Go now to I hate for free and touchless delivery and also include a personalized message of love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. So you guys are, I mean, talk me through the creative of how we decide, Hey, we're going to, before we're talking about getting, getting the world title on him, we're going to get him in the ring. We're going to, we're going to involve some physicality. We're going to have him jump the guardrail. Talk to me about how that creative comes together. You know, again, I hate to be redundant, but there was no single voice. There was nobody stood up. It wasn't Russo. It wasn't me. Nobody stood up and says, look, here is the, here is the design. Here's the architect. Here's the blueprint for what we're going to do with David Arquette. It didn't happen that way. It, it happened as a result of collaboration. So I'm, you know, the whole thing started with, yeah, okay, we got to get David, David Arquette's the star of this movie. And by the way, you know, well, that's, we, we, David was, David was a pretty successful actor yeah. uh, at the time, you know, and I think I had just, the movie that I remember, you know, before I met David, I saw a movie called 3000 miles to Graceland with that David Arquette was in along with Kevin Costner. One of my favorite movies to this day. It's a great movie. Go back and watch it. It's fun. Um, and of course, David was married to Courtney Cox and was getting a tremendous amount of publicity, you know, um, as a result, indirectly as a result of the massive success of friends on NBC. So having David, you know, jump the rail and get into the ring, whose ever idea it was initially, I'm not sure whose it was. It could have been Russo's. It could have been mine. It could have been Kevin Sullivan's. It could have been anybody's. I'm, I'm not sure who it was. It was, again, a collaboration among amongst the, the booking team. Might have been David's idea. I, I doubt it, but it, who knows whose idea it was. But I supported it. And, and you know, if, all you need to kind of do is go back and look at a lot of the things that I either – came up with or supported with regard to celebrities, whether yep. it was Carl Malone, Dennis Rodman, you know, Jay Leno, you name it. Um, that kind of fit my creative profile, if you will. If you have an opportunity to use a high profile celebrity that can garner mainstream media, that can be a little exciting, that can feel different than what we normally do. 
absolutely will do it. So the idea of David jumping over the guardrail and, you know, confronting and all that, whosever idea it was, I would have supported it a hundred percent. I got to circle back to something. Um, maybe David had been working on the movie 3000 miles to Graceland when he was promoting here with you guys, but, uh, the movie didn't come out till February of 01. And I can't believe I found a guy who actually likes that movie. Uh, that movie got 14% on rotten tomatoes. It had a $62 million budget and it made 18 million. So you may be the only person that I'll ever meet who actually liked 3000 miles to Graceland. Well, I thought it was a good movie. I, I did still do. And thank you for correcting me on the timing. It all kind of runs together. Sure. Know, sure. No big deal. A scream was, was a bona fide hit. Uh, that's really where most of our listeners who would, who would be listening to this now would have probably seen him before. I mean, that thing was just printing money and he did have some other stuff, you know, Muppets from space and, uh, kiss and tell. And, uh, he had a a cameo, I think on friends, but the big one that I think most of our listeners would have been, you know, on their radar is scream and never been kissed. If you're the, the three girls who listen to this show, you may be familiar with his work from that one. But he's definitely got some Hollywood swag. I mean, he's in a starring role of a, of a big budget film here and it's wrestling themed. So I get how we would say, Hey, let's cross promote. And I know that, you know, a certain section of our, our listeners are going to say, Oh, that's bullshit. Well, as a kid, and that's the frame of reference I'm going to give for this. I loved when Zeus was involved in the WWF and he too was a movie character and a, and a person from Hollywood with no wrestling experience, but the little eight year old me thought that shit was awesome. So I understand how maybe we would try something like that here on the April 24th nitro from Rochester, New York. This is the first time that we see the three decker cage from the ready to rumble movie. Uh, and then you call out, uh, Dallas page and, and Kimberly gives him divorce papers. DDP goes after you. Jarrett hits him with a guitar and this brings out Arquette to jump on you and Jarrett pulls him off. But before Jarrett could pound on him, Canyon saves Arquette. And then you challenge Arquette to a match and the steps are, if Arquette wins page gets a cage match for the title on this show. This that sounds like a good setup. It's pretty decent. Talk to everybody about Canyon. Of course, we've recently covered spring stampede and we see at the end of that match, uh, the world title match, it looks like, um, Kimberly has, uh, the guitar and she's going to nail Jeff Jarrett, but she turns and hits DDP. We pan over to you. You look right at the camera and go, wow, pretty cool little moment for a swerve. So we see a continuation of that now with the divorce situation here, but Canyon coming in was probably out of left field for some folks, but Canyon was not only a, a, a companion of DDP, but also a big part of the movie, right? He was a big part of the movie and, and Canyon, uh, Chris Canyon, uh, was instrumental in helping to choreograph and train some of the actors who were non-wrestlers uh, in the movie and, and had established a good relationship with David and, and had worked with David. So it, it made a lot of sense to put him in that match to help camouflage, coach, coordinate, and execute everything we were doing with David. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's next here on the show. Um, you and David have a match against each other. You kick him into the corner. David comes back with a spear followed by the worm, which is one of the loudest reactions of the night. 
And then Jarrett pulls the referee out at two and hits DDP with the belt. You hit a low blow on Arquette. Jeff hits you with the guitar by mistake. And that allows Arquette to get the pin. So pretty creative finish. And I got to tell you, even though, you know, people look back and poke fun at this pretty big reaction when, uh, Arquette breaks out the worm, which coincidentally, yes, as a move being used by too cool and Scotty too hotty on WWF programming, but whatever wrestling fans in the crowd are familiar with it and are excited to see David do it. So as silly as some of this stuff may come off, it got a reaction, which is sort of the whole goal of wrestling, right? It, it it was, and I think it got the reaction it did. It wasn't that spectacular a move, but as you just pointed out um, clearly and correctly, you know that was a move that the audience in general was recognized as a signature move um, over on WWF. Um, Scotty Tuhati, obviously uh, one of them, um, and I think the fact that David was willing and able, and this is one of the things to this day that I, I like about David Arquette is he'll do anything. I mean, yeah. he's kind of fucking crazy and, and well, no, not kind of, he's very fucking crazy <laughs> and, and he's got no fear. I mean, he has absolutely no fear and you know, for him to go out there, not only figure out how to, 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 to execute the worm, um, which is not easy to do, uh, if you've never done it before and if, if you're not an athlete by nature, um, and David certainly wasn't at that time. Uh, but I think when the audience saw that he's actually, and he's not just coming out there and throwing a punch or hitting somebody with a chair or spitting green fucking Gatorade in somebody's face for a finish or any of the typical camouflage moves that celebrities do because they have no skill sets you know, for him to go out there and, you know, perform somebody else's signature move, I guess, if you will, um, got a great reaction because it, I think it communicated to the audience that David actually gave a shit. You know, he cared. He, he took it seriously. No, he wasn't a wrestler. No, he never trained. No, he, he didn't go up and down the road and cook fucking hamburgers on the engine manifold and, you know, live on $3 a night in the back of a van and all that, you know, all the storied things that we all hear and respect. I'm not diminishing it in any way. He didn't do that. He came in, he was a movie star. He was a Hollywood guy. He came in, he got an opportunity. He took some, some spotlight away from some other talent that maybe felt like they deserved it. Those were all the negatives that David came in with, but he actually took the opportunity and made it work because he gave a shit. It, it actually mattered to him. And that was probably the reason why it got the reaction it did. You tickled me when you talked about cooking hamburgers on your engine manifold back in you were uh, in the leaner days in the AWA, did you ever throw some hot dogs and tin foil and put them in your engine manifold? No, usually I had a cooler full of liver sausage sandwiches and a couple beers, liver sausage sandwiches. Braunschweiger liver sausage. I fucking love it to this day. I grew up on it as a kid cause it was cheap. You know, my mom and dad could afford to buy a liver sausage and we thought it was a treat. And to this day, I don't eat it much anymore for health reasons, but every once in a while I'll get that craving and I'll go buy me a big old tube of liver sausage, some whole wheat bread. I'll cut about a half inch thick slice or two of liver sausage enough to cover one slice of, of bread and I'll drown it in Tabasco sauce. It's heaven. It's, <laughs> it's heaven. 
the more I learn about you, the more, uh, I appreciate your, your weirdness and quirkiness. I've never even heard of that shit, but, uh, I'll have to try. You've never heard of liver sausage. No brother. You got to go to Piggly Wiggly or Albertsons or whatever you have down there in Huntsville. I don't know what the, the supermarket chain is. You go into the meat section where the lunch meats are, and it usually comes in a big, you know, tube, like Jimmy Dean sausage does, you know, patties, sausage patties. It's they, it's called Braunschweiger or liver sausage. And you got, now if you can find some organic stuff, that's even, that's even better. It's, it's awesome, but you're not going to experience the full effect of great Braunschweiger or liver sausage unless you drown it in Tabasco. And I'll tell you how nutty I used to be as a kid. I used to make a big liver sausage sandwich with raw onions on it and Tabasco and a slice of cheese. And I would eat it right before I went to bed because it would give me the most amazing fucking nightmares, like vivid in color. And like, I remember them for days. And you know how, when you have a dream or a nightmare, you remember when you first wake up in the morning and then by, you know, the time you finish breakfast, it's just like evaporated from your mind. You go, God, I had this really weird dream last night, but I can't really explain it. I used to have these vivid dreams whenever I eat liver sausages and, and Tabasco with raw onions and cheese right before I went to bed. I would have these amazing dreams and I would remember them for days. It was like going to the movies in my sleep. It was awesome. Hang on. You weird motherfucker. You, you, you aimed for nightmares. You were looking forward to nightmares. Why not? When you go to sleep, what else are you going to do? You go to sleep, you close your eyes, you go to sleep. You're wasting six or eight hours. Why not have entertainment? And get some sleep all at the same time. Let me ask you before you came up with this, that David Arquette should win the world title. Did you eat one of these liverwurst sandwiches before bed? No, I had quite, no, I, I I really, you know, my relationship with liver sausage is kind of, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's, it's it's been an off and on relationship my whole life. (laughs) You know, I, I, you know, at some, sometimes, you know, at some points in my life, I've just, you know, absolutely craved it and loved it. And I would hate eat it on a regular basis. And then I would, I'd find, I'd find another love. It's like finding another woman. And all of a sudden, oh. all of my, all of my focus and my energy was on so, something else that I, that I enjoyed eating. But just like that high school sweetheart, just like that first love you ever had, there's always that little bit of tug at your heart every once in a while when you're feeling nostalgic or just in a certain frame of mind and you're looking back and from a gastronomical point of view whenever i reach one of those kind of states of mind um i I go right back to to liver sausage because that's the relationship we have but no at, at this point in time i had i had kind of an estranged relationship with liver sausage Oh my God. Let's move on. We could talk about this all day. Uh, let me ask when you guys set up the angle and the match here and, and our kit beats you, I mean, clearly it's, it's to set up DDP getting a title shot. Did you already know at this point on nitro, we're going to put the belt on our kit or at this point, was it still just, oh, we just need to set up a match for thunder and, and we want to use this big monstrosity from the movie. And this is a nice tie in and we'll have our kit figured in somehow. But maybe you hadn't yet decided he was going to win the belt. Um, I, I, I'm going to. I have to guess because you know I'm I'm sorry to everybody that's listening. I have a pretty good memory, 
But when it comes to 20, 25 years ago, it, it all kind of runs together, especially after the history of this whole thing. And this, this is, you know, the David Arquette winning the world title match has been the subject of a lot of narrative over the last two decades. And it's really interesting. Let me first answer the question. I don't know. But let me tell you why I don't know. The reason why I don't know is, number one, it's 20-some-odd years ago or whatever. And the other reason I don't know is because I've, I've read and been exposed to and have heard in person so many different versions of how this all went down that I fucking can't remember myself. And it's, it's interesting. Have you ever heard of the term, you know, success has many fathers but failures but an orphan? Yes. All right. Good. good. Uh, Jason Hervey's uncle. Um, I, he was the first person. I'm, I'm sure others. I'm, I'm sure he did come up with that term, but it was the first time I had ever heard it. And it, it, it stuck with me. And this was 15 years ago. It stuck with me because it's so true, especially in wrestling <laughs> when not only companies tend to rewrite history, but the individuals within those companies certainly rewrite history at every opportunity to make themselves look better or to make themselves look smarter, or to make themselves look like the one person who could have saved something but didn't get that opportunity. And there's been so many versions of how this all went down by so many people over the last 20 years that honestly, I can't sift through the bullshit any longer. It's just one big collage of clusterfuck to me. So I I honestly, I don't know for sure if we'd already made up our minds about David winning the title. I tend to think not because WCW, my relationship with Russo, the process was fairly new. I'm not being critical of Russo here, uh, but our working relationship was brand new and we were still trying to work out the creative process. So I find it difficult to believe no matter what anybody says to the contrary that there was that much kind of advanced planning. I think we were flying more by the seat of our pants every week. And a lot of ideas were spontaneous. And this was one of them, in my opinion. Somebody claims it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Before we do, though, you took a guitar shot here. Talk to us about taking a uh, a Jeff Jarrett guitar to the Dome in 2000. Yeah, you know, I don't, to this day, there's a big part of me that doesn't want to kill any illusion. Uh, because it's the illusion that makes sports entertainment, professional wrestling so much fun. Um, but much like a lot of the bumps and choke slams and power bombs off stages and stupid shit that I was involved in, uh, I didn't feel it. It was no big deal. It looks great. You know, I'm, I'm not a particular fan of guitar shots and wrestling, just like I'm not a big fan of like fucking cookie sheets under the ring and all that other silly horse shit. But from a visual pers- point of view, it, it, it's, it's really cool visually. Um, but it didn't, it, it didn't hurt. I well, didn't feel it. I don't, I don't think most fans have a different, I mean, listen, if it was the honky tonk mans from 1988 before they were gimmick among gimmicking these things and they're really whacking motherfuckers with real guitars, maybe that's different, but no, uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, as long as you're, 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 you're being hit on the top of your head or the front, front portion, top of your forehead, kind of back to the middle of your head, um, and you're ready for it, you know, a guitar 
what does it weigh? A pound and a half or two pounds. They're hollow. The the wood on an acoustic guitar, especially a cheap one that you're going to blow over somebody's head, um, it's not quite like balsa wood, but it's damn close. Um, even if you go buy a, a cheap guitar at Walmart, you know, off the rack, you know, I'd take that shot all day long if there was a paycheck involved in it and probably not feel a thing. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. But searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls. Until now. Thanks to TheZebra.com. TheZebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place you can compare quotes side-by-side from over 100 providers and choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus, they will never sell your information to the spammers, so you're never going to get any of those unwanted calls or emails, and that's a big deal. Here's how it works. You just answer a few questions on a simple, fast form, and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch called the Zebra the kayak for auto insurance. The best part is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year just using the zebra.com. But how much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. It's spelled T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A.com slash 83 weeks. It's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Oh man. I have got a great idea for Starcast five. One day hit Eric Bischoff over the head with a fucking guitar. I'll go. I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. And this is fun for me because believe it or not, I have, uh, I figured out the who done it on this whole title thing early on, not too, maybe not very early on, but somewhere in the first year of what happened when the podcast with Tony Schiavone. Tony admits that this was his idea. Really? And he says he was a part of a booking meeting and it's down to, uh, um, him and Vince Russo. And at the end, when everybody's cleared out and it's just them, he says, you know, Vince, you know, what get them really talking something like that. We'll, we'll try to find the clip and, 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 and play it. But Russo says we should have our cat win the title. And it was sort of the, the old jump to conclusions game. And Tony says, I'm just saying. And so there we go. The April 20th. Was, so, was, was Tony ribbing him? Did you follow, uh, follow up? The, I mean, was Tony fucking with Russo just no. to see if he'd take the bait? Cause that would, you know, Tony's, Tony's a sly Fox, you know, he'll, he'll throw something out that seems innocuous and like, it's, you know, just an idea, um, uh, just to see if you're dumb enough to take the bait and run with it. So I'm, I'm wondering if that was a setup by Tony. Tony claims that that's not exactly the case, that he felt like it would get some mainstream publicity. And clearly it does. Uh, if they were, if WCW felt like they were sort of behind the eight ball, as far as the national conversation and, and the WWE was gaining market share, which they clearly were, maybe this would, could be a shot in the arm from the mainstream and. So it's Tony Schiavone's fault. All these years, I'm getting harassed, harangued, humiliated, and social media and otherwise. Yes. Did you pick up the phone and call your buddy Dave Meltzer and tell him? Uh, no. Does anybody know this other than the people that listening that l- listens to Tony's show? 
Well, here's the deal. If you want to send your hate tweets for the David Arquette title win, it's at Tony Schiavone 24. That's his Twitter handle. At Come on. Now we have a really large audience, all four corners of the globe. We are a worldwide media enterprise here on 83 weeks. And for the last 20 muckerfuthering years, I have been subjected to all kinds of just dirt sheet narrative garbage. The social media people that follow me on Twitter bust my balls because they read this stuff and they believe it. And right here on 83 weeks, I'm learning for the very first time. Conrad knew it. Tony knew it. For some reason, they decided to keep Tony decided to keep it a secret <laughs> for two decades. Where, by the way, I don't believe him. Or I, I, should, I should say, I do believe him. I don't blame him for not wanting to take credit for this. But now we hear, I hear, 83 weeks for the very first time. For 20 years, I've been getting my ass kicked, and it's Tony Schiavone's fault. Yes. I'm calling Lois. We have to. Uh, but um, first, yeah. on the April 26th Thunder, here it is. The show opens with Jeff Jarrett, yourself, and Kimberly having kidnapped David Arquette because Jarrett blames him. For the title switch and said they'd hold him hostage unless DDP agreed to put up the title in a tag match. So later in the show, Arquette spears you as Jarrett hits page with the title. We get a double cover and another referee comes in to count the pin on you, which makes Arquette the world champion. And there's a famous shot of Mickey J handing him the big gold belt. And he looks down incredulously like what I won. And David has said that DDP is the guy who told him he was going to win the title. And David thought it was a joke at first. He, he wrote, I thought it was a bit of a joke. And he was like, no, I'm serious. I think my response was that's a terrible idea. No, we can't do that. But then they explained the storyline and that I wasn't pinning a wrestler. I was pinning Eric Bischoff. <sighs> Listen, I can get behind that. I guess like we're not, we're not pinning Hulk Hogan. We're pinning Eric Bischoff. What'd you think of the execution of it? You watched it back this time for the first time in, uh, what? 20 years. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. The only thing I didn't like about that storyline is the kidnap element. Yeah. That, that was just, you know, what the fuck there could, there easily, easily with a little bit of thought could have been a much better way to kind of create jeopardy and, and force that issue with page, you know, the idea that we kidnapped, um, a citizen and somebody not on the roster or even somebody on a roster kidnapping, holding them prisoner is kind of goofy, not right. kinda it's goofy. There's no kinda involved here. It's just goofy. And if that one element would have been refined a little bit or enhanced a little bit. I thought the overall execution of the angle and the outcome was pretty good. Well, here's the desired effect. You know, it's going to make entertainment tonight and extra and access Hollywood and all those type shows. But even USA today on May 1st said David Arquette star of the wrestling movie, ready to rumble captured the world championship wrestling heavyweight championship last week by pinning Eric Bischoff in a tag team match. He defends the title tonight on TNT's WCW Monday nitro live. So listen, you wanted some mainstream publicity and some coverage. No, Tony to Tony did. That was Tony's idea. Don't put that on me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you for that. 
the, the, this thunder though, where he won the title gets a 2.72 rating. The numbers higher than thunder had been over the past six months. Um, which was about 5 million viewers because look, we've got to be careful. I think not, we don't have to be careful, but I think we should be clear, you know, back in the nineties, early two thousands, you know, Nielsen and, and the media, you know, television media, uh, all talked about ratings and shares. They don't talk about ratings and shares anymore. If you notice for the most part, they talk about total viewers. That's, that's the current measurement. So in context, so that we can be relative that 2.7 times an average of, you know, 1.5 or 1.8 viewers per household, you're probably looking at four, somewhere around 4 million viewers. So raw last week did 1.8, 1.9. There you go. There you go. Uh, we should also mention that, uh, it's written. The Arquette match wasn't a success. Even if the show drew a higher rating than usual, because the main event only drew a 2.25, which is the lowest rating of any segment on the show and lost 25% of its audience largely after the Paisley Tammy match on the show, which went unopposed. So even though they not, they don't necessarily tune in for the match for whatever reason, the show did pretty well in the ratings and Meltzer would write. Yes. The most prestigious title in our sport changed hands twice more this week with DDP beating Jeff Jarrett on nitro on April 24th in Rochester. And then it being put up to the winner of the fall in a tag match on thunder on the 25th in Syracuse with David Arquette pinning Eric Bischoff. The idea, and since this just happened, as we went to press time, we'll tell if this is correct is that WCW believes the publicity about Arquette winning the title will hit mainstream and lead to a ratings boost on May 1st. Since the WWF looks to be changing its world title to rock and Austin will appear as well. That's okay. And I, I, when I got up this morning, I I took Nikki, my dog out for a hike. Um, it's a beautiful day. I knew we were going to do this show. I knew that Meltzer's name was going to come up. I knew that I was going to drink copious amounts of caffeine as I always do. And oftentimes under these circumstances and you bring up stupid shit that Dave Meltzer says, I tend to get overly agitated. And I promised myself as I was walking up the stairs with a cup of coffee in my hand, Nikki leading the way coming up to the bonus room where I've got my laptop, my cameras, my mic, I'm all set up up here. It's my own little version of a, a, of a Western man cave. I, I said to myself, Eric, do not let Anything that Conrad tells you about what Dave Meltzer said, piss you off because it affects me for hours after we're done with the podcast. I walk around looking for someone to kick the shit out of. I look for something to break. I'm looking for something that's not very expensive that I can throw. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get upset, but I am going to as succinctly as I can point out the idiocy of some of these comments. First of all, Dave Meltzer was making a judgment about whether or not the show was successful based on the deterioration of ratings from one segment to another, totally disregarding the overall number. No, that was me. That wasn't him. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry, Dave. All right. Then Read it back to me again about the May 1st. Why Read back the intention. Why did? Because from Dave's perspective, he is now in the minds of myself, Vince Russo, 
the, the members of the executive committee, people from Warner Films, he's able to somehow look inside of the minds of these people and decipher or determine why we did what we did, not only why we did what we did, but what our expectations were. So I'm, I'm really interested in knowing how anybody is capable of doing that. The idea is that WCW believes the publicity about Arquette winning the title will hit mainstream and lead to a ratings boost on May 1st. Up, up, up. There it goes. There it goes. So from, from Dave's perspective, we did all of this because we were hoping for a ratings boost on May 1st. Correct? Yes. He's an idiot. I'm not going to get mad when I say it. Let me say it a different way. Gosh, Dave's an idiot. There. Now I feel better. Um, th- that's an example uh, of why I didn't like and while I still don't like the type of reporting that Dave has made famous. I hate to even call it reporting. The guy can't string a fucking coherent sentence together. I read one of his tweets the other day. I re- had to read it five fucking times to try to figure out what he was trying to say. For a guy that writes a newsletter with 10,000 words, you'd think he'd eventually learn how to structure a goddamn sentence. But clearly that's just not important to him. But that's not why we did it. And to suggest that's why we did it, I think is a reflection on Dave's agenda and his lack of knowledge and quite frankly, laziness because he could have picked up the phone and asked somebody. The reason we did it as we've been discussing now for, I don't know, going on 36 minutes or more was because we wanted to help promote the movie. We wanted to create synergy. We wanted to take one, which is WCW plus one, which is a movie, add them together and hopefully come up with a two and a half or three. And that's why we did it. It wasn't about, Oh my gosh, WWF is doing this on May 1st. So we better do something to counter it. That's Dave's childlike approach to covering an industry that he clearly knew nothing about, probably still doesn't. And when it comes to the inner workings and the operational side of things, he clearly didn't know, probably still doesn't because he didn't put in the work and the time and the effort to figure it out. Oh, now I don't want to, I, I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to throw anything. Uh, when this podcast is over, I'm, I'm going to feel pretty good. I'm going to relax, be relaxed because I didn't get angry. I think the most shocking thing about what you just said is that you can still read Dave Meltzer's tweets. I thought for sure you would have been blocked by now. I don't block many people. No, I, thought, I, I, I really he don't would have blocked you. Huh? I thought he would have blocked you. Well, he's a cunt. And that's oh. you know, another example. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 you have to be pretty, you have to, you have to tweet something that's pretty ugly and egregious and hurtful, uh, to get me to, to block you. Um, so there are people that I, I I have blocked, um, for that reason, you know, I I think when you're trying to tear people down or when you say hurtful things that have really nothing to do with anything other than spite and anger and just being vile. Yeah, I'll, I'll block that. But when people write things that I disagree with or criticize me for things, whether I deserve it or not, I generally don't block those people. You've, you've got to be a pretty low life piece of shit. Um, to, to inspire me to block you. Oh my God. Red ass Bischoff is in full effect. Let's talk about David. He says, um, 
David writes or has said there was a lot of hatred and a lot of people got so pissed off. I remember telling one wrestler and I'm not sure who it was. It wasn't Bam Bam Bigelow, but it was someone who hadn't ever been the champion before. And he was just so pissed. I was like, I don't know what to say, man. You know, that was my first inkling of, of sort of how upset people were going to get. And obviously I get it. These people dedicate their lives and I have nothing but respect for wrestlers to this day. I haven't taken a dime for wrestling. I get it. I've just been training for a little over a month now and I get it. It's painful. It's intense. It's a ton of hard work. These people go in and in and out every day, working on themselves and working on their craft. So I get it. I've always respected the business and I just sort of had an opportunity that I think a lot of people would have made the same decision if they were in that situation. It's sort of a, a dream come true for me. So I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Do you remember the reaction from other wrestlers maybe being upset? Not really. And, and I think that's largely because nobody from a, from a talent and, and even from an employee's point, you know, a WCW employee point of view, nobody was really quite sure of what my role was. I mean, it wasn't really made clear. Brett Siegel didn't come in and, you know, prior to me coming back to WCW and say, okay, this is Eric Bischoff's new role. So, you know, it, I don't know what, six months maybe had gone by since the time I had left to the time I had come back. There wasn't a clear communication as to what my new role was and how I was really working within WCW. So people were off balance. They weren't really quite sure. Was I coming? I think in the minds of many people, I was coming back to run the company because that's what they were used to. I'd been doing it since 1994. And to have me back, they either consciously or subconsciously assumed that I was the guy again. And I wasn't. I, I wasn't calling shots. I was making recommendations. I was trying to manage Russo's creative process. I was trying to work with Brad and 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 people within Turner Broadcasting at a higher level to make things all fit together and work on a synergistic basis, which was the the mission at the time, the mission du jour, if you will. Um, but I wasn't calling the shots. But the talent didn't know that. Wrestlers didn't know that. I mean, if the employees didn't know it, certainly people that would show up, you know, once a week or maybe twice a week if they were on Nitro and Thunder – they certainly wouldn't know it because they were so far removed from the inner workings of, of Turner Broadcasting. They they couldn't have found the cafeteria. They couldn't they <laughs> they couldn't have found a cup of coffee in the CNN Center. More or less, understand what was really going on inside the walls. So there was just a lot of uh, a, a lot of people that just weren't sure what my role is, and as a result of that, people were a little reluctant to express their opinions to me. That doesn't mean that they didn't express them to each other or to David. Or to others, but when I would walk in a room, uh, they would usually sanitize their thoughts and, and words to, to the to the extent that I was a hard time. I had a hard time reading them, but I never sensed it. I'll, I'll tell you what, and people can rewrite history all they want. They can remember things the way they choose to remember them to make themselves feel better or smarter or clairvoyant, whatever it is people need <clears throat> to do to get through their days. But there was a general sense, at least around me, of enthusiasm when it was all over. But if there was people that were pissed off, whether it was Bam Bam Bigelow or somebody like you know of his stature backstage, with regard to David, I wouldn't have seen it, and it, I, I wasn't aware of it. 
One of the things I enjoy most about our podcast is that it's all about nostalgia. It makes me think about, you know, being a kid and growing up as such a big wrestling fan and growing up cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, but most of us had to give it up when we realized it's full of sugar and junk that we really shouldn't be eating. But then when you realize, Hey, if I cut out all the carbs and the sugar, man, there, there's nothing I can even eat anymore, but you still need to eat breakfast, right? I mean, we've always heard it's the most important meal of the day. And that makes sense. You know, if you, if you start your, uh, your engine going the right way in the morning, you're going to be more productive at work. You're going to get more shit done, but how do we make this happen? Magic spoon magic spoon is a sponsor of this podcast. And I got to tell you, we are a fan in the Thompson household. And here's why you're going to dig it. Zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in every serving. They've also got four really badass flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing. It almost feels too good to be true. It's keto friendly. It's gluten free. It's grain free. It's soy free. It's low carb and it's GMO free. Uh, I have absolutely fell in love, uh, with magic spoon. My wife is a big fan of fruity and, and you can probably guess what that tastes similar to. I'm a big fan of cocoa. Uh, our daughter really likes blueberry. You're going to love it too. find out which one you like the best. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks, grab a variety pack and try them all today. Be sure to use that promo code 83 weeks at checkout. You're going to get free shipping for that. We should mention magic spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash 83 weeks and use the promo code 83 weeks for free shipping. And we thank magic spoon for sponsoring the podcast. We believe in it. You will too. Try the cocoa buddy. You're going to dig it. It's magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks. Even though a lot of people hated this, David seemed to be embraced by Ric Flair. David would recall Ric Flair at one point put his arms around me and said, Hey guys, he's one of us. And that made me feel really great. Arquette learned about winning the title the afternoon of the Thunder Show when the idea was first formulated, and at the time was asked to keep it through the pay-per-view. In an Alex Marvez interview, he said about the offer, I said I felt all right, but it did feel kind of weird. Obviously, I don't deserve it. These guys are so skilled, and it takes so much athleticism and gymnastics strength, not to mention all the acting and stuff that goes into it. It's just really hard. And Arquette would acknowledge that he learned wrestling from Canyon DDP and, and Shane Helms in a ring at the warehouse where they were practicing for the movie ready to rumble. And he said he messed around when the ring was up while they were doing the movie. And after the Syracuse show where he won the title, he was buying food and drinks at the bar for everyone, not just the wrestlers, but fans and hangers on. And unlike other celebrities who've been involved, he's very well liked by the wrestlers, even the ones who didn't think using him in that way was a smart idea. It's also written that Arquette was splitting his earnings from doing pro wrestling to the family of Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, and Darren Drozdov. And I think that's something that sort of flies under the radar, but whatever WCW was paying him for all of this, he kept none of it. Does that not speak a lot to the character of David Arquette? It it certainly does. And for our listeners, uh, I'm going to be doing a interview with David Arquette for adfreeshows.com slash Patreon, um, our paywall counterpart for this show. And it's going to be a video interview, so I, we couldn't do it on this podcast, obviously. But I'm going to spend an hour or two hearing from David his perspective and what he was really thinking and what he really went through. But I think it's important 
and we'll get into it more uh, on adfreeshows.com. Uh, I'm actually going to do the the uh, I'm, I'm going to record the interview later on this afternoon. But I really want to dig into that because one of the things that I learned about David subsequent to to all of this, and I've I've stayed in contact with David over the years. We're we're, we're good friends, and you know we 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 do stay in touch. Um, David truly loves wrestling, and, re- and not only loves it from a fan's perspective. A lot of people love it from a fan's perspective. David has a sincere respect for it, and I think it comes from being as an actor being able to recognize just how much talent has to put into their characters and has, and and how much of a challenge it is to perform in front of a live audience. Um, and he's not shy about talking about it. So we'll, we'll dig into that more, but I, I think it does reflect a tremendous amount of respect that David has always had for, for the industry and, and still does to this day. We've often pushed the, uh, the guy Evans nitro book, and we still contend it's probably the best book written about WCW. And this is directly out of the book. Russo looked to his right at Tony Schiavone. What are you thinking? He asked the announcer. Nothing. Tony said, what are you thinking? Schiavone replied, you want David Arquette to win the world title? Russo's joking here, comedically putting words in Schiavone's mouth. Well, that's a thought responded Schiavone. Did anybody think of that? Immediately, Russo reformed the meeting and ran the idea past, quote, 10 to 15 people, he claims, including Bischoff himself. And according to Russo, his zany proposal was met with zero resistance, meaning that in a swerve no one could see coming, David Arquette would become the world heavyweight champion. Quote, we were going to do the predictable thing. We were going to do the tag match and Jarrett was going to get the title back. But I said, wait a minute, Eric, the whole idea of putting the belt on page was to be unpredictable. Now we're going to turn around the night and do exactly what everyone thinks we're going to do. And that's put the belt back on Jarrett, but we can't do that. That's predictable again. So at the building, we came up with the David Arquette scenario. No, actually Shivani came up with the David Arquette scenario. And in that recall of Russo's, it made it look like it was his idea. Well, either way, I think it's the same thing where he says, you know what we could do? And they're going back and forth and nobody wants to say it. And then Russo blurts it out. Um, either way, pretty remarkable. Uh, it's written here. I went over to Jeff and said, Jeff, sit down. I got to lay something on you. You know, Jeff laughed because he knows me. He knows how I write TV and he trusts me because he knows I was (laughs) successful before. So Jeff didn't really have a problem with it. Russo didn't find page to be quite as receptive. When they told me page remembers, I started laughing. I said, yeah, right. What's the finish. And they go, that's what we're going to do. And I said, no, we're not. And I pleaded for at least 10 minutes. I argued, but sometimes you realize you're just a character on a fucking show and you've got to move on. That said, I fucking sucked it up and did what I had to do. I walked downstairs and pulled David aside. When I told him he burst out laughing and said, yeah, right. And I said, no, dude, we're really going to do this tonight. And he said, no, we can't do that. And I said, guess what? If you don't do it. Say you don't want to do it. Or guess what, dude, you're the world champ. And then it fucking hit him. Like, are you kidding me? I'm the fucking champ. I'm going to be the WCW world champ. Fucking a right. I do. So that's sort of the backstory of who said what and when and how that night. But when it's all over with David Arquette is the world champion. And and fast forward, the May 1st nitro is uh, not too far from me. It's Birmingham, Alabama. 
DDP Canyon and Arquette come out to no real pop with the belt. Arquette starts talking and the audience starts booing. He says he's going to give up the title and you tell him he couldn't. And he's going to have to be in the three cage match at Slamboree. Russo, Liz, Jarrett, and Kimberly all come out with you. Luger runs out in the middle of all this looking for Liz. And you tell Arquette he's got to defend the title against Tank Abbott. And DDP no. said he wanted the match with Abbott. And that sets up Abbott versus DDP. And if Abbott wins, he gets the title match. So then Tank beats DDP after Jarrett hits DDP with a bottle, which set up Arquette defending the world title against Tank Abbott. And of course, later in the show, David would pin Tank Abbott in two minutes and 13 <laughs> seconds after DDP oh, hit Abbott. This is, with a, this, this is an alternate universe. This is awesome. Like, I think so many people forget uh, it was such a big deal that he won the world title that it sort of gets lost in the shuffle that, oh, yeah, this first defense was a clean pin. Well, not clean, but he pinned Tank Abbott in two fucking minutes. How crazy is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. You know, I ran into tank about a year ago or eight months ago at a convention and it was called we Starcast had, in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes. It was Starcast. And I, I hadn't seen tank probably in 20 years. And you know how it is when, you know, we've all gotten older, we've all aged and you, you know, you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time and it's like, ah, I think, I think I know that person, but gosh, you know, tanks certainly changed. He's lost a ton of weight and he's gone through some, you know, health challenges and things like that. And I've packed down about 40 pounds and gotten 20 years older. So I can't necessarily pick me out in a crowd as easily as you used to either. And we saw each other and we had this kind of moment where we looked at each other and it took a second to register. And he gave me a really kind of strange look. And I wasn't sure if he was pissed off at me or if he didn't know quite what to say because he hadn't quite recognized me yet. But I'm wondering now if he was looking at me going, you motherfucker, you had David Arquette beat me in two minutes. It's probably what he was thinking. Oh, my gosh. What do you think? You think that's what he was thinking? You know, Tank, you booked him. No, he's a nice guy. He looks like a, he's totally a different guy. person. It's funny because when we started posting or people, fans started posting pictures of him at the convention. There were a lot of comments like, oh my God, look, it's a hipster tank. It's like a, a totally different looking individual. He's um, a great guy. Tank, tank really, you got to get to know him because he's quirky as fuck, or at least he used to be. Nice man. Uh, though. Nice wife, but he, nice family. Really super guy. Once you get to know him, you get past the, the, the exterior or what you think you know of him. And you just sit down and, you know, have a sandwich with him or chat with him. He's really a super guy. It's funny because, uh, great friend of the show, Dave flair says when he was first working with WCW, he wasn't old enough to rent a car. That's not something a lot of people think about, but back then, and maybe even now you've got to be 25 in order to rent a car. So even though he's old enough to be on the road and, 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 and making, you know, great money working for WCW, he can't rent a car because he's not of age. So he has to ride with guys and. Tank Abbott invites him to ride with him. And then the other guys start to rib him and say, oh, you need to carry a weapon or something. Cause if tank wants something from me, he's just going to take it. <laughs> Dave is like white knuckled riding shotgun. Like, oh, please, Mr. Abbott, don't hurt me. And then of course, everything's fine. But the perception of tank Abbott and the reality are two totally different things. Absolutely. A few days later on thunder, Arquette uh, ran out to be uh, part of the stage that was gimmicked. That was broken during the show, but 
He must not be told about it because he falls down into it as he's running out. And this has become somewhat viral. Uh, they're, they're planning a big spot where guys are going to take a big bump off of the, uh, like the, uh, the big new logo and the, and the truss and go through, you know, like the gimmicks table that we've seen in the WWF a lot with Shane McMahon and that type. Well, our cat has no idea and just fucking tumbles right in there, but let's <laughs> fast forward. The Slamboree pay-per-view, May 7th, 2000, Kemper Arena, Kansas City, Missouri, 7,165 fans, 4,862 paying a gate of 139 grand. So not quite where we once were, but pretty good crowd on its own, I suppose. Uh, It does a 1.4 buy rate, which is the second lowest in WCW history. But the main event, here we are, Jeff Jarrett, David Arquette, and Diamond Dallas Page all trying to get this world heavyweight championship from the three decker ready to rumble cage. It's uh, 15 minutes and 30 seconds and the observer. It gets three and a quarter stars. It's uh, a little weird guys are climbing to the top. Arquette's standing there with a the guitar. They're teasing. He's going to hit Jarrett. Of course he hits page. Jarrett gets the belt. In other words, it's the exact same finish as the last pay-per-view with Kimberly in the Arquette role. Um, I guess it's also the exact same finish from WrestleMania as well. And Canyon is then shown, uh, he's showing up to fight with Mike awesome and they're on the bottom cage and then awesome throws Canyon off the top of the cage onto the ramp, which is heavily gimmicked. So they're trying to sort of recreate King of the ring 98, where undertaker threw mankind off the cage, but at least we've gimmicked the ramp here. They're stacked cardboard underneath the ramp to sort of soften the blow underneath, which was marked. But from that height, there could be disaster if you miss this. And Canyon's selling it big. There's there's EMTs, and it's a whole thing. It's worth mentioning, though, that we're just a year after the whole Owen Hart thing happened. You know, I know that that's not the genesis of this show, and we're talking about David Arquette. But in hindsight, do you think that Maybe this wasn't the best idea to do in this arena, given that this is where the Owen Hart tragedy happened a year before. No, I don't feel that way at all. And let me try to explain why. In any other form of entertainment slash sport or sports entertainment or sports, let's just take NASCAR. When someone is killed at a NASCAR event, do they stop turning left at 180 miles an hour? Do they quit racing? Do what? Do they stop for six months or a month? Or if someone someone is unfortunately killed at Talladega, do they not race at Talladega anymore? And if they do, do they do 65 mile an hour speed limits? If someone is hurt and injured on 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 the football field in an NFL game, or or worse, or paralyzed, do they quit running that play? You, look, it is unfortunate, and I don't want to sound cold and callous about it because I'm not at all. But I think the wrestling audience, it's really interesting because if you look at what we all enjoy, it's scripted violence. It's, it's base, it, it, when it's probably at its best, it's good guy versus bad guy. The audience wants the good guy to win. The bad guy keeps finding new and more you know, 
devious ways to prevent that from happening. There's this conflict till it builds to a crescendo, and eventually the baby face somehow manages to win. But it, that's, that's at its very core. But if you watch what we're watching today and what we've watched for decades, it's, it's violence. It's extreme violence. And it's, you know, characterized as professional wrestling and it's acceptable. And wrestling, when it's been at its best, well, let me, let me say that differently. When wrestling is, was at its most popular, which is, by the way, in the 90s and the early 2000s, when, when Nitro was delivering five and six and seven million viewers and Raw was de- delivering five and six and seven million viewers and Nitro at one point for, for its lowest rating in WCW history was delivering about 2.3 million viewers for the lowest rated show in history. That period of time that we're talking about was when wrestling was at its most successful was when it was at its most extreme. And, 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 and with all respect, and, and to include ECW, which most people look at now um, so reverently. Um, but yet, as much as the audience loves the extreme and loves the overtop and they love the risk and McFoley coming off the top of cages and people putting their bodies in, in, in situations where they, they could, they're literally risking their lives. Um, they all love that. But then they become very, um, they be all they become virtue signalers when certain, thi- certain things certain things occur. No, I'm telling you, wh- why else then would the wrestling audience? And I've been you know confronted with this before. Why did you have Sting continue to repel from the ceiling well, after Owen Hart's death? Like th- that makes me some kind of a fucking Marquis de Sade. Well, hang on now. This is a little different. This is the arena where he died roughly a year later on his actual birthday. So there's a good chance that some of these fans in the crowd were at over the edge the year before, and now they're here and they see another guy flying down to the fucking floor. From I disagree. I disagree there. You can't draw a parallel between those, between what happened to Owen and the stunt that we created and rehearsed and felt was safe. Here, they're not connected. Now, if you want to suggest to me that, you know, if we would have come up with a stunt where Canyon was repelling and somehow fell, you know, halfway through and fell through the, the stage, then, yeah, I would I would have to agree with you. But you you simply cannot connect the dots anymore than you, you would expect. You know, as I said, if a driver were unfortunately killed or, or hurt seriously at Talladega one year, you wouldn't expect NASCAR to not race there or to lower the speed limit or to put everybody in a fucking golf cart because they wanted them to race in golf carts because they have to pay respect to people who might have been at that race the previous year where someone had been hurt, injured, or worse. You can't draw those connections unless you feel the need to be some kind of wrestling's version of a virtue signaler. Here's Here's what they have in common. Neither one of them were wrestling. I mean, we're not talking about this as a traditional wrestling thing. This isn't in the scope of what traditional wrestling is. You just said the word. This is a stunt. They're both falling stunts. This is wrestling is a stunt. I get for that. fuck's sake. The whole an entire match is a stunt. But the EMTs, bro. Do you? <laughs> okay, let's let, let, let's take it a step further. So, this is, I'm going to do this very carefully. So that I don't get blown up in social media 
for what I'm about to try to say. I'm going to take my time here. Let's just say a, a member of someone's family walks into a convenience store and is, walks into the middle of an armed robbery and catches a stray bullet and is shot and killed. And then a member of that family two days later is sitting at home watching television and there's a scene in a television show where somebody walks into a convenience store and in the middle of a robbery and catches a stray bullet and, and loses their life as part of a scripted, as part of a scripted show are the producers of that show. Should they be, should they be remorseful? Should, should there be a moratorium across all the networks and cable outlets that because of this incident that happened in Poughkeepsie, you know, at a convenience store that was unfortunate, someone there lost their life. Let's make sure that we don't put anything on the air that represents that tragedy because there may be some people watching at home that have experienced that. I just think it's taking things too far. These were unrelated stunts. These were unrelated activities. These were unrelated creative components of two different presentations that had nothing to do with each other. And if there were fans in that arena, which I doubt there were, that took any exception to this because somehow they had post-traumatic stress syndrome over what they saw a year before with Owen Hart. If those fans were in the audience and did react that way, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. All I'm saying is I agree with you that this stunt somewhere else would have been fine, but this particular arena, I don't know if that's the right time, right place. Well, we'll agree to disagree. David, uh, pins you for the title. You ever think about doing what Russo did and making yourself champ sometime? No, no. Then look, I didn't have nearly as much heat in 2000 as I had in 96 and 97 and 98, but I, I still had some, I probably had half the amount of heat and it was probably kind of a Pavlov's dog reaction more than it was real heat. Uh, and I recognized that then, and I certainly recognize it now, maybe more so now. Um, but it was an, I was an, I was the most likely candidate to do, to, to do the job. Had it been, you know, Paige or anybody else doing the job that, that would have been too far in my opinion, but what is the harm in pinning a figurehead? What, what's the harm? There is none in, in people that want to kind of fabricate this, as they said, the most prestigious title in our sport. First of all, it's not a sport, motherfucker. It's scripted entertainment. So right off the bat, you lose me. But you know, the most prestigious title in our sport. It's interesting how guys like that will all of a sudden revert to that very traditional, total respect for the sport. The, for the sport, for the industry when it's convenient, but at the same time, we'll give away finishes. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about, you know, the internal workings of a business they know nothing about and we'll expose the industry in every other way. But God, if you do something that disagree with creatively, they'll, they'll immediately latch on to the traditions of our sport and the most respected title. Well, look, it's a, it, it is the world title is a prop. It's probably the only thing that I agree with Vince Russo on. It is a tool. It is a device. It is a stake. It is something to aspire to that's used as a device in the creative process to create conflict. That's what it is. It doesn't represent actual 
athletic supremacy or skill set supremacy. Now, I'm not saying that when Drew McIntyre you know, became the WWE champion that he didn't deserve that. I'm not saying that at all. He did deserve it because of his work ethic, because of his ability to connect to the audience, because of all of the skill sets that he's developed and the commitment that he's made. And probably I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that the company has confidence in Drew to represent the WWE on a commercial basis at a very high level. That's, that is a tremendous amount of respect it's worthy of a tremendous amount of respect, I should say, and it is an amazing accomplishment. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Drew McIntyre could beat Brock Lesnar in one-on-one. It doesn't. And, and it, it, you, you kind of have to remember that the goal of the WWE, the goal in AEW, the goal in Ring of Honor, the goal in Impact Wrestling, the goal in NWA – is to create entertainment that people enjoy and will come back and watch. And sometimes you have to do things that are different than what a traditional you know, wrestling fan would expect or a writer would want to write about. So you know, I, I, I take exception to some of this, not on a personal basis. Putting the title on David Arquette was Tony Schiavone's idea, as I just found out. The rest of the world maybe knew it, but I didn't until this this podcast. And it was, you know, and, and I went along with it. I'm not saying I didn't have anything to do with it. I did. I approved it. I was in the role that I was in at that particular time was to oversee, to act as a filter, to act as the liaison between Turner Broadcasting and WCW. And putting the title on David would not have happened had I not allowed it to happen. But nevertheless, yeah, as untraditional as it was, he beat a fucking 48-year-old fat guy that wasn't a wrestler. Who cares? Who the fuck cares? Did it diminish the title? I guess in the eyes of some fans, it probably did. Did it make people, you know, so disgusted that they were going to quit watching wrestling or quit watching WCW? Maybe some of them did for a while. But we were losing audience anyway, and we had to roll the dice. We had to do something to kind of re-energize WCW. And mainstream media was one of the go-to you know, formulas that we had used successfully in the past to help do that. So whatever. I, I just I, I really don't understand the indignation of somebody like David Arquette beating someone like me for the world title. I would get it if he beat Haku. Or he beat Bill Goldberg, or he beat Ric Flair, or but Tank shit. Abbott, or Tank ha, ha, Abbott, or Tank Abbott. Well, no, but Tank what? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, two different things. But half of the people that bought a ticket to watch the show in that arena could have beat me in a real fight at that point in my life. It wasn't that big a deal. Here's something you can enjoy while you're stuck home during quarantine: CupofJoe's.com. Cupofjoes.com is the home to over 50 brands of cigars, including favorites like Monte Cristo, Acid, Java, Davidoff, Rocky Patel, Kristoff, and more. And by the way, if your local cigar store is closed during the quarantine, and they probably are, let me just remind you that Cupofjoes.com has you covered, and they ship internationally. And also orders over $95 include free shipping in the United States. So whether you're looking to try a new cigar in singles, 
or man, get a whole box. They got you covered here at cup You're going to get great prices. And of course, excellent customer service. Check out our page. It's cup forward slash podcast. And they've got exclusive deals just for 83 weeks listeners or give them a call. If you're a little old school, it's one 689 6876 You're going to reach one of their great cigar specialists. These guys know their stuff. We should also mention that their cigars are carefully stored in a beautiful walk-in humidor to ensure that your cigars come fresh and humidified. They've also got lighters, cutters, and other cigar accessories available. But if you enjoy cigars, you are going to love cupajoes.com. I want to spell that for you. It's C-U-P-O-J-O-E-S.com forward slash podcast. Cupajoes.com forward slash podcast. And by the way, when you go to cupajoes.com forward slash podcast, you're going to get a special little promo code where you can save some money and get a great cigar. Check it out. Cupajoes.com forward slash podcast. And I should mention too, these guys listen to the podcast. This is not a, a national sponsor that came through an ad agency. These are guys just like me and you who absolutely love professional wrestling, but they also love cigars. And if you're a wrestling fan, Man, we got to stick together, support these guys, go to cup forward slash podcast and tell a friend about your new favorite online cigar store and where you can get a great deal. It's cup forward slash podcast. Let's talk about what happens the next night on nitro. You come out with new blood and our cat and he said, page, uh, or are you, <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Whoa. Way to set me up for the fall. Okay. Come on. We want bring to it on, big it, man. Bring it on. Line and sinker, just like all these morons in the arena and all the internet wrestling experts who thought it was such a disgrace to put the WCW World Heavyweight title on Mr. David Arquette. And I did it for one reason only to screw you royally. Of course, Paige ends up coming out and hits uh, David with the diamond cutter. And in the Nitro book, there's some quotes from guys uh, about the, the title win. DDP would say, putting the belt on David Arquette, stupidest thing ever. I've never taken more shit from anything than that. Eric had just come back in and I know he was trying to work with Russo. I love Vince. Now me and him are buddies again, because we let shit go. There's no use to holding on to it, but that was Vince's idea. And it was a bad one. Really bad. It is what it it's is. Tony Schiavone's idea. We got to call page and tell him. I had plenty of ideas that weren't great ideas, but none as bad as this one though. Whenever I hear those guys who bust David's balls, I tell them David only made 10 grand on that payoff and he gave it all to Pillman's widow. He gave it all to her and that changes people's viewpoint on it. So I tell people, if it was you, you wouldn't have done it. Fuck you. You would have cut your buddy's throat to get that spot. David was just one of the guys who got that spot. It was really stupid though. Kevin Sullivan says when we were in Florida, Eddie Graham had two rules. One was that the faces and heels couldn't be seen together. And the second was, if you lost the fight in any public place, you were fired guys that wanted to be wrestlers used to get beaten up by the pros guys used to leave with broken noses and broken faces. And w- one time they beat a hopeful so bad. They stripped him of his clothes. I'm not condoning that, but David Arquette winning the world title. Boy, Scott Hall never even won the title. Scott Hall never won the world heavyweight championship, but David Arquette did. Can you tell me what's wrong with that? Was that a question to me or is that just that's a, a, that's a hypothetical from him. Russo, of course, defends it. He says, one of the first things that got the WWF over was the unpredictability of it because things were starting to happen that you would never in a million years think would happen. So basically on a week to week basis, you had to tune in 
in order to see what was happening. To me, David Arquette was one of those instances. Number one, it, it is a big part of the story. The David Arquette thing is somewhere. And Eric and I knew that from day one. And number two, it got people talking about WCW negative or positive. They were talking about WCW again, and that's exactly what we needed people to do. Nobody has mentioned this, but before nitro, somebody hands me a USA today. And there it is right on the cover of the entertainment section. It says David Arquette winning the WCW title with a plug for nitro tonight at 8 PM. Well, that kind of exposure would have never happened without the angle. Sid vicious, who was in ready to rumble said he didn't see the problem with David being the champion that everyone else does. Sid, Sid said the territory was already on his ass and he didn't think this could make it worse. He didn't think it was that bad of an idea. He said by that time, Russo and Ferrara had already made a joke out of everyone else. So what's one more jerk going to hurt Scott Steiner thought it was a slap in the face to the wrestling business and fans flair wrote in his book. How did I feel about our kid as a champion? He had a hell of a lot more character than some other guys who wore that belt. And Bobby Heenan said in Flair's book, when I found out they were putting the belt on David Arquette, I replied, is Jaja Gabor sick this week? That's the way it was in WCW. This is a company that had Buff Bagwell team with his own mother. It's like hee-haw down there. They might as well have had Buck Owens picking at his guitar while wrestlers jumped out of corn. <laughs> now that's funny. That's who wrote that? Bobby, who said that? Bobby Heenan. God damn, that's funny. I miss Bobby Heenan. Of course, as we know, David would return to wrestling many years later, December 13th, 2010. He's on raw. He makes his WWE debut by teaming with Alex Riley in a handicap match against Randy Orton. Of course, Randy won eight years later after he wins the world title or after this match, but I guess 18 years after he wins the world title, 2018, he's back. And this time on the indie circuit, and he even does an interview with the Wendy Williams show. And he says he's been trolled for 18 years by fans on the internet. And he wants people to have respect for his name in professional wrestling. And, uh, he, uh, returns to wrestling July 15th, 2018 against friend of the show, RJ city. And, uh, this is championship wrestling from Hollywood. He loses to RJ, but still he wants to get out here and prove what he can do. And they did a lot of interesting stuff. Did you ever see his match with, uh, with Nick Gage that went awry, it happened in November of 2018. It's a death match for game changer wrestling. Uh, he has, uh, they're doing like light tubes and stuff. And there's a cut that isn't supposed to happen. And he winds up being rushed to the hospital. It's a, it's a whole major thing. Were you keeping up with that when it happened? Did you see it? Yeah, I did. I saw it after the fact. I saw a clip of it. What do you think and of, of him getting back into wrestling and then doing hardcore stuff of, of, of everything he could do? I don't think most folks would have ever guessed he would be in that match against that opponent. Yeah. Look, backing up from this point a little bit, um, David reached out to me at some point. I, I don't remember it was and said, look, Eric, I, I want to do a documentary and we're going to, I'm going to talk to David more about this because I only remember fragments of these conversations that I had with David. Um, he, he said, I want to do a documentary, uh, about my experience in professional wrestling. And, and I, I asked him, I said, David, what's, give me an idea. What's it, what's it going to be like? And he said, I want it to be, I want it to be my love letter were, were his exact words to professional wrestling, meaning he wanted to pay respect. It, clearly he wanted to, I'm, I'm guessing, and I'll find out more when I, when I interview him for adfreeshows.com. But I, I, I interpreted that at least as him saying, 
look, I've, I've been taking a lot of heat, you know, for the last 20 years, everywhere I go, you know, people are throwing this in my face and I want to do something to show the world how much I respect this business. And I want that to be my swan song. And, and, and he asked me if I would help, you know, coordinate, you know, a couple things. I was involved with a show, the nasty boys or Brian Nobbs was promoting a show, I think outside of Detroit and David and his wife called me and said, Hey, do you think, you know, you could figure out a way for me to kind of show up and get involved in that. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get Brian a call. I'm sure we can work something out. Um, turned out great. David showed up at, at the hotel we were at. Uh, he had his film crew with them and they were very, you know, they're, they're shooting a documentary. They're not shooting a reality show. They're not shooting. They were shooting a documentary. It's kind of a, a fly on the wall type of documentary. They were getting a lot of B roll. They were getting, David was mic'd. We were all at the bar you know, there was a bunch of talent there and we had been there for a couple hours already. It was like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I think most people started rolling in around nine, nine 30, 10 o'clock. And everybody was having a great time. Axel, Jim Duggan was there. There was a bunch of people there that we all knew. We were all having a great time and David shows up and David was well-respected, well-liked by the, you know, everybody at the bar by that point. I don't think anybody held it against him that he beat me for the world heavyweight title. It's, every time I say it, it's ridiculous, but, um, Whatever, David got along and his crew was there. He had probably four or five guys, he was an audio person or two, and he had one main camera guy, big tall guy, I can't remember his name. But anyway, we're all at the bar. Nasty boys are there. I was probably hanging out with them. And his crew, David's crew, was, you know, very in a very stealth like manner man, uh, manner, you know, grabbing shots, grabbing clips, picking up bites of audio for this documentary. Well, of course, everybody had been drinking and things escalated and, and Jerry Sag, I shouldn't laugh. Jerry Sags realizes that his cameraman was over behind a bar kind of hiding and David's cameraman was over. In a, and by the way, these cameras are, this looked like a, a regular Canon, you know, D3 type camera. It wasn't like a big traditional television, you know video camera. These are very discreet, look very much like a camera you could buy at Walmart, only it was a digital, high-end digital video camera, as well as a single lens, lens reflex camera or a traditional 35 millimeter camera. Um, so his, his cameraman, who was a big tall guy, was over in a corner of the bar trying to hide and be discreet in you know, a telephoto lens. And David was mic'd up and Jerry Sags realizes that he's being filmed. Well, the Unfortunately, David, nor the cameraman or David's producer, asked permission first. And there's kind of an unwritten rule. You know, when, when, when the talent's together, when they're off duty, when they're away from the arena, particularly if they're socializing, you know, at the hotel bar after the show or prior to the show in this case, it's kind of off limits. If you want to approach them for an autograph or a picture, whatever, at least be polite and ask permission. That would certainly include videotaping them without their knowledge. Now that was wrong. That the cameraman was wrong. The producer who set the shot up was wrong. They should have asked Jerry. Well, once Jerry realized what was going on, now Jerry Jerry Sachs can he, he he's got a bit of a temper. There, you know, he can be the easiest guy in the world to get along with. He can be a big cuddly teddy bear, or he can be in real life your worst fucking nightmare. And at this point, he was the nightmare guy. And he walked over to this cameraman who must have been about six foot four, six foot five. Not, not a you know, muscled up guy, but a big guy. 
walked over, grabbed his camera, which I'm guessing was worth, David told me the next day, somewhere around seven grand, five or seven grand, picked the camera up, smash it on the ground, big fight ensues. Guess who jumps in the middle of it? Not me. I'm smarter than that and too old for it. David Arquette. He jumps right, and this was a shoot brawl. This wasn't like for TV or for the documentary. It wasn't priest. This was a legit brawl. And David saw his cameraman, you know, in trouble, and <laughs> David jumps right into the middle of the Nasty Boys. Fortunately, there were enough people to pull it apart before David got pulled apart, but it was, it was a big deal. But that, I think, is a reflection of David Arquette, you know, was Jerry Sags disrespected? Yes. Should that cameraman, should that, that producer have asked permission? Of course, that would have been the respectful thing to do, but David wasn't going to stand on the sidelines and watch his buddy get the shit kicked out of him and not do anything about it. And I think that's a reflection of who David Arquette really is. He's a stand up guy, you know, and in this case, David should have probably done a better job of communicating with the people in the room and making sure everybody was cool with everything. He didn't. That was on him. But at least he didn't go cower in a fucking corner and watch his buddy get the shit kicked out of him by, you know, 600 pounds of nasty boy. I hate Steven Singer. And you know what else I hate? Everything that's happening in the world right now. Our heart breaks for those who have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling small businesses, and everyone affected by this. Normally, Steven Singer is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time when I would announce his new rose color for Mother's Day, but this year is different. I'm announcing his brand new I Love You 24 karat gold dipped rose. It's a beautiful pink blush color rose that will hopefully brighten your loved one's day. But Steven wants to put a little love in everyone's days. So he's using a portion of every rose sold to support local restaurants by purchasing catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, and first responders and hospital workers. You can purchase an I love you rose and know that you're sending love to the moms in your life while supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone, simply say, I love you or honor mom on mother's day. Steven singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible. Steven treats his customers as family and is here for you. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com for free and touchless delivery and also include a personalized message of love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Oh, man. What a guy. You know, and by the way, it's worth mentioning if any of our listeners are, are sold on David Arquette yet. I've had him a few times at StarCast. Could not have been a nicer guy. Uh, as a thank you afterwards, he sent me a box of cookies to the office. He's just a stand-up, classy individual, and he's just like us. He's a wrestling fan. So if you're a wrestling fan who maybe wasn't sold on David Arquette, rethink your position. Um, we should mention, though, you know, I can't, I can't finish the show with not saying David Arquette winning the world title won the most disgusting promotional tactic uh, of the year in 2000 in the wrestling observer newsletter and in the WWE magazine several years later, they listed David winning the title as the number one failure of WCW nitro, even though it technically happened on thunder. I mean, listen, WCW is obviously on the downtrend when David wins the title. I mean, there, in my opinion, I don't think this accelerated, you know, the direction headed WCW was headed. I mean, had he never won the title WCW's 
fate wouldn't have been any different. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that same could be true. Same could be said and the same is true for the finger poke of doom. Right. You know, wrestling fans all like to point to the, you know, that one moment, that one decision, that one person, that one choice that, you know, catapulted WCW to its fate. And it's a combination of a million little things, most of which the wrestlers, the talent themselves, including some of the most, the highest profile among them. I'm not going to name names. Uh, some of them are still close friends of mine who, friends of mine who continue to profess that they had, you know, insight or knowledge or an awareness of things that were going on that they completely didn't. These are guys that would show up twice a week to TV at best. Uh, and show up at house shows that were far removed from the business of WCW business as, you know, three guys playing golf, you know, at a golf course 20 miles away from the CNN center would have been. But they all, so many of them like to position themselves as being knowledgeable of what went wrong and what could have been different. What was that one focal point, whether it was a finger poke of doom or bringing in Russo or, you know, Bischoff being too friendly with the talent or, you know, letting Hogan get in his ear or whatever the bullshit that people like to create to make themselves feel smarter than the next person. None of it is true. No, and then most of the people talk that, that have those conversations or write those articles or, or perpetrate that narrative don't know their ass from a bag of rocks. But it sounds good, and it makes them sound smarter. And to your point, Conrad, whether they could have brought in you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin to, to win the title in that particular match. And guess what? WCW would have still suffered the same fate because none of it had anything to do with what was going on inside of the ring. It had everything to do with AOL time Warner, not wanting professional wrestling in their catalog. That's it. It wouldn't have mattered if it was making money hand over fist. It wouldn't have mattered if it was losing millions of dollars. They wanted room in their primetime schedule for the type of content that they felt at that time served the branding of those particular networks and wrestling wasn't it. That's why wrestling went away. Not because David Arquette won the title by beating fucking Eric Bischoff, not because of the finger poke of doom. None of those things. WCW went away because it's what the brain trust at AOL time Warner wanted to. And by the way, a lot of executives who had been at Turner for a long time were thrilled to hear that because other than Ted Turner, there was nobody in Turner Broadcasting that wanted WCW since the day Ted Turner acquired the right or acquired uh, Crockett Promotions and turned it into WCW. He, Ted was surrounded. Ted, Ted was Custer. And the WCW executive committee were the Indians who were all trying to find a way to kill WCW for years before I got there. And certainly after I was there for a period of time, we got a little bit of a reprieve because of the success we had. But when AOL time Warner came along and said, no, we, we no longer, we don't want wrestling on our networks. It doesn't meet our brand profile. It doesn't do anything for our long-term strategy. That's why it went away. Not because of David Arquette or the finger poke doom or any number of other dumb shit things that people that don't know what they're talking about that think they did. For the record, though, 
as far as the creative goes, I mean, you, you, I want to circle back to something you said, you know, I look at the world title as a prop and that's one of the only things I have in common with Vince Russo, blah, blah, blah. You're cool with the, the world title changing hands in a tag match like this, or the champion wasn't pinned creatively. No, no creatively. I think it was fucked up. Let's get to Twitter. We asked you guys, Hey, do you have a question for Eric on this? And of course, lots of people had questions. We'll try to sift through, get as many as we can. If you've got a question about next week's show, where we're going to break down the Monday night debut of impact. So the first time the Monday night wars were recreated this time, not WCW, but TNA, of course, Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan are there. We've had fun talking about TNA. So we'll do that next week. And if you've got a question, just hit us with it at 83 weeks, uh, ABC seven seventeen writes, well, there plans to do something more with Courtney Cox since she was, uh, the bigger celebrity. <laughs> uh, no, Courtney was a little busy with friends and I'm pretty sure her agent would have had, you know, anybody that suggested that she get involved, assassinated at some point. So no, there was no plan. I wish it, I mean, Courtney was hot as hell. It would have been fun to have her on the show, but nope. Cinema seven podcast writes, what did you think of our dedication to being in that role? Uh, he still has never said anything negative about the business. Like most of the other celebrities who've tried to poke fun at it. I have nothing but respect for David. I can't wait to interview him later on today for adfreeshows.com. And I, and, and not because I, you know, I mean, I, I talked to David and, and I've gotten to know David. I know what he's all about, but I'm anxious to give our listeners and hopefully, you know, people beyond our show an opportunity to hear directly from David and to make their judgment of the type of person that David is or the level of respect that David has for the, the professional wrestling industry and the people in it. And I think when they hear David and they hear his own point of view, they'll have as much respect for him as I do. Alex writes, do you think if ready to rumble was released in 98, when WCW was on fire, that it would have driven enough fans to the theater to make it a success? Mm, I don't think it would have, I think it would have helped certainly, but I don't think it would have helped so much that it would have changed the, the, the real financial fortunes of the movie. I mean, the movie was what the movie was. I, you know, in 98, 96, 97, 98, our core audience was really uh, 18 to 39 year old males I don't think the movie was really written or produced for that demo. It was more of a family movie uh, that skewed a little younger. So I don't really think the core WCW audience at the peak of WCW success would have been as responsive to that movie uh, as one would think. Sean in St. Louis has the question we all really want to know. Did you think Arquette was tan enough to be champion? Now, it's one of the challenges that I had with the idea, with Tony Schiavone's idea, by the way, I encourage everybody to to tweet um, Tony Schiavone and, and, and let him know how you feel about Tony Schiavone's idea to put the title on David Arquette. Um, but one of the problems I did have with it was, and I pulled David aside, I said, David, you know, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. This is what time it was when he got to the building. I said, it's a sunny day. Uh, do you mind going out and trying to get a little bit of color? You know, because you're, you're looking a little pasty. Uh, David's response was, look, man, I, I, I can't. I got I to gotta get ready. I've got to get my, you know, because he's a method actor. I, you know, he, he really 
gets into the role by convincing himself he is that character. And any good actor or many good actors, you know, utilize that technique. They just immerse themselves in the character, sometimes for weeks or months or longer, getting ready for a, for a very important role. And I think David took this opportunity that seriously. And when I suggested that he go outside and get a tan, he basically said, brother, it's not on my contract. I can't do that. So I was, I was disappointed in that, but uh, not enough so to, to you know make me want to change direction. Lots of people want to know why you guys didn't implement a scream mask at any point in here. Uh, some people even suggesting that maybe Vince Russo is under the scream mask. I think these people have been quarantined too long. Quarantine too long, smoking too much cheap weed. RJC writes in, and some of the in-ring promos during this period, you wear a lapel mic in the ring instead of using a microphone. This is something that we've still never seen in wrestling. Any reasoning behind this, or was it just something you were trying? And do you think it should be done more often? I think it was something we were trying. I don't remember the discussions we had leading up to that, but you know, I've always, not always, but for a while, I've I've believed that. You know, when you look, technology has changed and, and the idea of every time you go to the ring, you're carrying your, you know, your microphone in your hand and you have to hand it off amongst others. It just looks a little stagey and forced and kind of cumbersome. There's no way around it or there wasn't, uh, you know, for many, many years. So when the idea of a lapel mic and being able to have a conversation that looked like a conversation you would really have. Uh, particularly in a com- in a confrontational way, um, without having to pass a mic back and forth like a you know a bong, um, to me, kind of made a little bit of sense, and we wanted to try it. Lots of people want to know if you guys ever had a, even a preliminary discussion about Oliver Platt coming in as Jimmy King just for a cameo during any of this. No, we never did, and I don't think you know that would have been possible. You know, Oliver Platt for for a, a while. Uh, especially after this movie, he did some, some pretty, and I don't remember the names of the movies, but, uh, Oliver Platt had done some pretty, um, successful, very serious roles. And certainly after this movie went on to do even more of them. So I don't think, uh, I don't think he would have, I, I don't know. There was no consideration whether or not he would have done it or not. I'm only speculating. David would have a better idea because David, I'm sure knew him better than I did. But I, I, I just never thought never crossed our mind. I think once we got through with the David, uh, storyline, we didn't feel like there was any need to, you know, continue to stunt cast it. David, we felt was strong enough. Um, so there was no conversations about it. Talk to me about macho man. Lots of people want to know what macho man thought of him winning the world title here. You know, I, I hate saying, I hate saying I don't remember or I don't know, but I, I don't really think Randy and I had ever had any real conversations about it. You know, Randy, Randy, Randy was unique in the sense that he was a super traditional kind of guy, you know, the way he came up in the territories and, you know, Kevin Sullivan talking about, you know, Eddie Graham in Florida and, you know, the kind of the, the culture that wrestling in the sixties and the seventies and maybe for a while in the eighties, a brief while in the eighties had, um, Randy was a part of that. And it was part of the fabric of what made Randy Savage, um, the person and the performer that he was. But at the same time, you know, Randy Savage was also all about making money and, and commercializing the product and expanding it beyond just what we did in the ring. 
So I, I'm, I would only guess that he may have felt that creatively it was a little slapstick and silly, but I don't think he was as offended by it. And I'm guessing, I don't know. I do, but my impression, at least looking back, was that he wasn't nearly as offended by it as Dave Meltzer was. The famous picture of Arquette realizing he's the world champion. You can see a loaded soda flying at his head in the background if you really look for it. And Arquette has gone on record as saying, oh yeah, lots of people threw stuff. Did you view that as a win? You know, you've, me and you have talked about maybe even on the first episode of 83 weeks when the old WCW ring started to fill up with trash during the NWO era. I mean, you said, uh, Hey, I couldn't stand up because I didn't want everybody to see that I had a Woody because I knew it was working. When you see trash being thrown at David Arquette, similar response. Like you think, Oh shit, this is working. No. Um, no. Did it have the potential to work because of that reaction? Had David, had there been a long-term plan in place, had, had more thought creatively, uh, gone into that storyline, if you will. Um, so that there could have been, uh, a, a different ending. In other words, if, if we would have been able to position for a longer period of time, David is a real heel and had him coming out and bragging about it and, and use what we did as a means to really put super heat on David instead of treating it as more or less a one-off it lasted a couple of weeks, of course, but it was still more or less a short form story. Had that had a long-term arc to it with a payoff that would have satisfied and redeemed, um, the audience's position with regard to David and him winning the title, then I think it could have been good. Then that heat would have been good. But as it was, it was, you know, fuck you heat, you know, get off my TV screen heat because we weren't able to really capitalize on it. Think about, think about it in this, this way. And I've never thought about it this way before. I'm literally flying by the seat of my pants here, but imagine if you would have had Hulk Hogan turn, uh, and, and, and become a part of the NWO and it only lasted two weeks and we would have moved on Would all of that heat that we got in that moment matter. No, it wouldn't have, it would have just been fuck you heat or we're disappointed in you heat. But when you take that moment and you build upon it and you use that reaction as uh, an investment in a story, in an investment in a character, now you've, now you've got a completely different set of circumstances on your hand. And that's, a, that's kind of what we did with our cat. Um, rather than taking that heat that we had created and that reaction, that emotion, call it whatever you want. If you don't believe it was real heat, because some people think they know the difference between real heat and go home heat as people like to refer to it. It's a reaction. It's emotional response. People are disgusted. They're angry, much like they were with Hulk Hogan. When he turned heel, they were genuinely pissed. Those, you know, the beer bottles that people threw at me, you know, after the fact, you know, weeks or months after the fact, when the NWO was really becoming established, that was legitimate fuck you heat. I want to hurt you heat. When fans would, I'll just speak for myself, not for other people. When fans would, when I would walk out with Hogan and I had fans rushing, you know, from their floor seats to try to take me down, it wasn't because they loved the storyline. It's because they were actually pissed off in a real world. They lost any comprehension of what was real and what wasn't. That's how 
That's how good of a job we did. Could we have achieved the same thing with David Arquette? I don't think we could have obviously could have achieved it to an NWO level, but could there have been a better payoff? And could we have capitalized on the heat that we created in that minute or the reaction, if you don't believe it was real heat, the reaction that we created as a result of that story? Absolutely we could have. And it was on us for not having the foresight to do it. One last question. All the professor wants to know, did you like the triple cage concept? Clearly this is a listener who hasn't been listening to me for very long. Um, all that did, it, it was, it, it was a triple gimmick match and everybody knows how I feel about gimmick matches. Now I, I compromised my position going back to the beginning of the show. My role here was to kind of filter oversee, manage what was up until that point, an unmanageable process from Brad Siegel's point of view. That was my job. And part of my job was to compromise and find synergy between Time Warner and Turner Broadcasting's WCW. So as much as I hated the match or the cage, I should say, um, and the match that took place in it, it was, it also served a purpose with regard to the movie and promoting the movie. So I set my personal feelings aside as I do to this day about, you know, whether or not that was a good idea because it was a good idea at the time in the context of promoting a movie that our parent company was invested in promoting. I think the, I don't know what the budget for ready to rumble was. It was relatively small, 10, 12, 15 million bucks, which for a movie is not a lot of money. It's 10, 12, 15 million bucks. And my job was to try to um, take advantage of every opportunity that we could to help promote our parent company's investment in this project. So, yeah, I hated it, but I hated it and did it anyway because it's what we needed to do at the time. Not to be that guy because I do have access to the information at my fingertips, but the budget was 24 million. It made 12 and a half at the box office. But let's talk about another movie that we are excited about. It was supposed to debut at South by Southwest. Of course, that was canceled this year because of the coronavirus. But someday soon, we'll all be able to see You Cannot Kill David Arquette, uh, a documentary that followed his return into pro wrestling and why he did it. And uh, I encourage everyone, if you're sort of not sold on David Arquette or you have your mind made up in a negative manner, go out of your way to watch this and See what you think, because I think you'll be pretty surprised uh, with the the passion and love of professional wrestling that David Arquette really has. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. And and by the way, when I talked to David yesterday or the day before, um, he th- they found a distributor for the documentary, and I'll let him discuss that because I don't know if it's um, public knowledge or not. I don't want to step in any shit. Um, Studios and distributors are very touchy about that kind of thing. So I'll let David decide whether or not he wants to uh, reveal that information. So they do have a distributor and David is working on getting us a clip of that um, documentary so that we can have it posted as a part of our adfreeshows.com Patreon uh, show that we're going to be recording later today or tomorrow. Well, stay tuned. we got lots of fun stuff happening over at adfreeshows.com. But, uh, next week right here on the show, we're going to break down the Monday night debut of impact. I had a lot of fun with our impact show recently. We got a ton of great feedback. I even heard from some of the higher ups with TNA and, and they were impact now as it were, and they were really happy to hear us talking about some of their legacy shows. 
I think this is going to be fun. What say you? I look forward to it. I, I look forward to it. I'm going to go back and watch it and kind of refresh my memory and do my homework so I can answer as many questions as I possibly can without saying I don't recall or I don't remember or being vague. So I'll, I'll do my homework. I'll sharpen my tools. I'll be ready for you. I'll fire up the caffeine and I'll be ready. Look forward to it. We'll see you next week. He is at E Bischoff. I am a, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you right here every single Monday on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Thanks for tuning in to 83 weeks today, guys. We appreciate all your support. We should mention that tomorrow we've got a phenomenal hashtag ask Arn anything. And you don't want to miss this. If you've got a question for Arn, ask it right now at the Arn show, but coming up on Wednesday, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Tony Schiavone and I check out backlash 2006 where Vince McMahon and Shane McMahon would tag up to take on Shawn Michaels and God, that's a real sentence. It's happening on Wednesday at what happened when, of course, on Thursday, we're talking to Jr for grilling Jr, and we're covering backlash 2000. And before I tell you about the main event, the undercard has Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit for the intercontinental title. Come on. But in the main event, you've got triple H with Mr. McMahon and Stephanie in his corner, taking on the rock with stone cold in his corner. And Shane is the special guest referee. That feels like a fever dream, but it happened. And you get to hear Jr rant and rave as only he can. And then on Friday, we jump forward five years to backlash 2005. And man, this is one heck of a show. There's a tag team match on this show with Hulk Hogan teaming with Shawn Michaels to take on Davari and Muhammad Hassan. And of course, in the main event, it's Batista and triple H for the world title. So much fun stuff coming up. And oh, by the way, you can hear all of these shows early and ad free and adfreeshows.com with an absolute ton of bonus content that's been uploaded. Just last week, we had a chance to catch up with David Arquette and talk about the 20 year anniversary of him winning the WCW world title. I know we don't do interviews here on this show, but we do occasionally over at adfreeshows.com. So here, Eric and David talk about winning the world title. What a cool thing that is. We've also got Eric revisiting the AWA super clash four, which was a tremendous episode because you get to hear Eric. Like you've never heard him before. You hear him as a fan, not the business guy, Eric, and a ton of other great content as well, including Eric telling the story of how he got fired most recently by the WWE his quote unquote, 83 days. Arn Anderson breaks down the backstage fight between Paul Orndorff and big van Vader. Tony Schiavone reviews tiger King. Yes, that's a real thing. It happened at adfreeshows.com. Jim Ross did a hashtag ask Jr. anything, but maybe one of our most requested topics is also there as a bonus episode. Jim breaks down the plane ride from hell. Of course, Bruce wasn't there, but Jr. was, and when he landed, he had to clean up one hell of a mess. But maybe my favorite bonus episode from Jim Ross is about the recent set of releases from WWE. Jim's been released from WWE a couple of times, but unfortunately he was the guy who had to let people go for years. So he's going to take you into the mind of Vince McMahon, maybe why this happened, but also what he expects from these talents. And we break them down individually on the free agent market. And then of course, Bruce Pritchard, man, we talked about WrestleMania eight as a bonus show. We've got all of our old live shows. And coming up later this month, we're going to revisit a Saturday night's main event from 1990. It's all exclusive to adfreeshows.com. You can join for as little as $9 to get these shows early and ad free. And you also have opportunities to get bonus shows and even come to Huntsville and spend the weekend with some of your favorite wrestling podcast personalities. 
Don't miss it. It's adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.